0: 1 Samuel chapter 8, let me pray. Lord God, I thank you for this moment. Thank you that you are going to speak. It's what you do. Thank you that you've given us the Bible. You've given us your word as a way that you do speak to us. And it's amazing, God, how you use it so much to speak right to what we're going through. Um, This room is filled with people that represent a lot of walks of life and different needs and situations and come in here with their own questions and quanderings and doubts and trials and all sorts of stuff that they're going through. Um, I pray that you would use this one loaf, so to speak, this passage that we're in by your spirit, of course, to speak to where all of us are and that you would use it for your uh, glory in our lives. Yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory, Lord God. And we're here to listen. We don't want this to be just something that we always do on a Sunday morning. We want to anticipate your voice this morning and listen for you. Thank you for your goodness and your grace. Thank you for your, uh, your strength, your patience, your steadfastness. Thank you for that. Teach us about you. Speak to us now. Give us ears to hear. Amen. I'm going to read through chapter 8. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. And the name of his firstborn son was Joel, and the name of his second was Abijah, and they were judges in a place called Beersheba. Yet, his sons did not walk in his ways, but they turned aside after corruption, after false gain. They took bribes and they perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and they came to Samuel at Ramah, and they said to him, Behold, you're old. I love how blunt they are. Behold, you're old, and your kids don't walk in your ways. Now, appoint for us a king to judge us like all the other nations, like they have kings. But the, but the thing displeased Samuel, especially when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, probably to his shock, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say and do. For they have not rejected you, but they've rejected me from being their king. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they're doing now. Now then, obey their voice Only you shall solemnly warn them first and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So, this is verse 10, if you're following along. So Samuel told all these words of the the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. And he said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them... To his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots, and he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties, some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and equipment of his chariots, and he will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers, and he will take the rest of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants, and he will take a tenth of your grain and your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants, and he will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your young donkeys and put them to his work, and he will take the tenth of your flocks, and you shall be his slaves and... You're going to cry out to God because of your king. The one that you've chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, no. But there shall be a king over us. That will also be like all the other nations. And that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, obey their voice and make them a king. So Samuel said to the men of Israel, go every man to your city, get get out of here. (laughs) This is the word of the Lord. Okay, we've been making our way through Samuel on Sunday mornings, and um, today we come to a, a, a passage. Um, That records a pivotal time in Israel's history. This passage is recording the beginning of a transition from the time of the judges. Those are leaders appointed by God to lead people out of a crisis, right? Um, We're transitioning from that time to the time of the kings. The judges were leaders that God was periodically um, appointing to lead, but it was kind of in an ad hoc kind of a fashion, According to whatever the situation was, uh, according to what they were facing, according to how Yahweh wanted it to be, and according to that leader's personality, um, they would lead They were great, but they weren't they weren't official positions. Um, they weren't a, a, an ongoing way that God would lead. They would kind of pop up as needed, and they would lead as needed. But they weren't. They didn't give, have a permanent feel or a structured feel to an actual governmental system there in Israel. It made things feel precarious. Now, um, I need to tell you about the word judge because there's a lot in Hebrew. There's a lot of play on words here that the that the author is definitely trying to get you to understand. The word judge is shafat in the Hebrew. And um, it was someone who would make sure um, that the nation was living according to the custom. I need you to hear that word. The custom of Yahweh's justice. That's the word mishpat, okay? And they're part of the same family of words in the Hebrew language. They belong to the same family. And it's a very rich family of words in the Bible. And the idea flows right out of the heart of God. Very big idea for God's heart flowing from his very character, At the core of Yahweh's definition or Yahweh's custom of justice is a disposition of generosity towards the orphan, the widow, the immigrant, and the poor. This is the quartet of the the Old Testament. This is God's heart. So he's saying mishpat, or sometimes, a lot of times it's coupled with another word, righteousness judgment, sadaka mishpat. Uh, it, It means... Giving to those people, having an eye for those people, looking out for those groups of people or those demographics of people and living for them at great cost to yourself. That's the important part. When we think of justice in America, in the West, we think of something like equality. we're We're going to divide up equally among ourselves. That's fair. That's what we think of. Uh, The Bible takes it further than that. The Bible would say, no, the the greatest form of mishpat, according to Yahweh's custom, um, the greatest form of mishpat is to give to those people in in an imbalanced way. I'm gonna gonna let you take from me so that I will be less and you will be blessed. You will be greater. The ultimate example of this is on the cross, of course. Jesus, innocence, the, the epitome of innocence, died for the guilty he took on the guilt of many he died so that that we could have everything we could be rich it's not equal that is not fair the cross is not fair but it's just according to yahweh that's justice see and the people of god are to live that way that's the idea and the judges shafat They were there to make sure that this nation, this chosen nation, was living this way. This is the way God, this is what God chose Israel to be on the earth. This was their main mode of ministering to the earth. Um, Let me just show you. Genesis 18, God says this. He's talking about Abraham. He wants to let him in on what he's about, how he's about to judge uh, Sodom and Gomorrah. God's about to make a judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah, He's, wanted, he's talking about Abraham, and here's what he says. Then the men set out from there. This is the story where God um, comes with other people with him, angels presumably with him, and Abraham feeds them, throws them a, a feast. Um, he, he talks about Sarah having, having a child you know, about a year from then. Well, after that feast, the men set out from there, and they looked towards Sodom. And Abraham went with them to set them on their way. And the Lord said, I think maybe to himself, or he's, this is what he's thinking, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because of him. In other words, I'm gonna make him a nation so that he can bless the, the, the world. So Abraham's got a ministry to the world. How is he gonna do this? How is he gonna minister to the world? For I have chosen him that he might command his children and his household and eventually his nation after him to keep the way, that's the word, a custom, the way of Yahweh, how? By doing righteousness and justice, sadaka mishpat, that's how. So the idea is that Israel would be a nation living and representing Yahweh by, by doing justice, meaning that they would plead the cause and take care of the orphan, the widow, the immigrant, the poor, at great cost to themselves, that they would use whatever intelligence they have, blessing they have, uh, talent that they have, that they would use it as a, not to hoard to themselves, but to be a benefit to mankind. Um, but Israel's heart would go astray. We know this. And horrible consequences would come upon them, so God would raise up a judge, a leader, who would deliver them and bring them into repentance and to right standing before Yahweh again, kind of bring them back to home base, remind them of their true north. This is what you're here for. And they would set out again. That judge would die. Israel's hearts would go astray. A calamity, a crisis would occur. And God would raise up another judge to make sure that they were living mishpat. see. Samuel was the last of these judges, and chapter 7 tells us that under his leadership and intercession, in chapter 7, if you remember a few weeks ago, through his intercession and leadership, Israel was restored to Yahweh in this mighty, mighty way. This miraculous thing happened where they, the Philistines were attacking them as they were seeking Yahweh. They told Samuel, they didn't run, they told Samuel very bravely, keep calling out to Yahweh for us, we're depending on him. Yahweh brings forth this incredible victory and takes back territory that the Philistines had, had taken from Israel so they gain ground and it's this beautiful thing and the last part of the chapter 7 tells us that all the days of Samuel he would judge the people this way. He would shafat the people this way. He would make sure that they were living this way by calling them out and interceding between them and Yahweh and this is how the nation gave so, gained so much ground. But, after, and, but then it goes into chapter eight. It's really literally speaking, the author's trying to show us a few things. He skips some unspecified amount of time, and he just says, "When Samuel was old, the hearts of Israel begins to go astray. Again, they begin to long after a king, and they use a pretext for this request. They come to Samuel and they say, "Look, number one, your sons are corrupt, and they were." Um, I love side note love the Bible. We like to think good parenting will guarantee that children become good. Samuel was great, and his children followed the way of Eli, his predecessor, instead. Boy, this has played out in, in my life. I was a youth worker for a couple of decades, and man, the kids that, I, that, that should have turned out following Jesus, their parents were raised them right, did all these right things, they... End up going astray. Then these kids that would come from these crazy homes—they are some of them are still following the Lord today. It's just—I it's just, love that the Bible speaks to that. It's wonderful. But they were taking bribes. They were following the way of Eli. They remind you a lot of Eli's kids. They're taking bribes from the wealthy class of Israel in exchange for favors to them, certain favors to them. Therefore, they and the I. What happens is they siphon and redirect the nation's heart and resources away from the quartet, away from those four, and create these big gaps and lots of injustice. The people that need resources and need the heart of Yahweh and need Sadakah Mishpat are kept from it. The people that should be releasing it are gaining more of it, and there's this huge imbalance going on because of this greed. Um. And number two, uh, this is what the text does not tell you until later, chapter 12, verse 12 tells us that the Ammonites were gaining ground to their east, creating a military threat. So the Ammonites are becoming a big nation, so there's, a, there's an international crisis brewing, the Philistines are finally at bay, but there's still a threat to the, to the west, to the east, Um, This Ammonite nation is growing up. It's freaking Israel out. In In the meantime, their leadership is corrupt under Samuel. So they've got some good reasons to worry here. And based on that pretext, they make this request. So they longed for a king, someone who would judge them. This is their words, not mine. This is what we want. We want someone who will judge us and go before and fight our battles. In other words, we want someone that's got good domestic policy, someone that will judge fairly. We want want someone who will do that and we want someone that will take care of our international woes as well. We're surrounded by enemies. We need someone that can handle that. Okay? So this passage is about, I'll just tell you, this passage is about what the human heart longs for. We're going to learn a lot about the human heart today. What it needs, what it longs for, and the complicated nature of the inner life of mankind, the complicated nature of your inner life. Okay? Today, by examining what Israel needs and what they're longing for, we're going to see what we need and what we long for really. First, number one, we're going we're to see that longings point to the things that are essential and, f- and fundamental in every human being. Your longings, if, you're, if you are wanting to learn more about yourself, who are you? What are you like? What's your purpose? Those types of things. Um, a good place to start is starting with what you long for. What are you desiring? What do you need? What what are the things that you think you can't live without? What are the things that make you panic when you think about things leaving or people leaving or whatever those things? That's a great way to start to know, okay, what was I made for? It usually goes down to something ancient, something fundamental, and something essential about who you are. We're going to learn that. Secondly, but, here's the great twist and complexity in all this, but those longings simultaneously have the power to ruin us. Have the power to ruin us at the same time. They reveal something that we need and have the power to ruin us at the same time. And how God, And thirdly, we're going to learn how God uses these longings of our heart, the good and the bad, the mixed bag that we are, to bring about what we truly need. What he knows that we were really made for, what we truly need. First, Our longings, your longings, my longings, if listened to properly, if paid attention to, they show us things fundamental about who we are. That's what I want to show you first of all. Um, If you're searching for who you are, and I'm sure you are searching for who you are, um, start with with what you're convinced you need. Look at verse 4. It says, Then all the leaders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah, in verse 5, and they said to him, Now appoint us a king to judge over us like all the other nations. We want a king. They're longing for a king. They're longing for a leader who would solve these very real problems of corruption and significant military threat that they're with. So first of all, I want you to understand something. Their needs are legit. The author tells you this. It doesn't doesn't say in verse 1 that the people made up some excuse to want a king. Now, these things were, Samuel's sons were corrupt. uh, Chapter 12 will tell you that the Ammonites are raising up. These are real problems. They weren't making these things up. And the idea of a king seemed to promise ongoing stability, permanence, those types of things that the judges weren't providing. There was no, like we said, no succession plan to the judges. When they would die off, Israel was kind of left to themselves um, until the next crisis. An ongoing family monarch with succession and training and policy, those types of things, would bring structure, stability, things that that the nation really did need. Now keep in mind... Also, this is not the first time the idea of an Israelite king ever came, came about. Um, the idea of a righteous leader who would rule Israel and, wor- and rule the world forever in justice in Sadeka Mishpat is hinted at throughout the Hebrew scriptures, arguably since Genesis 3:15 where uh, he's talking to the snake and he says there's one coming from the woman, a seed that will crush your head. You will bruise his heel. He will crush your head. A He, a leader. Arguably from that point, certainly since Genesis 49. Genesis 49 talking to Judah. This is a prophecy to um, Jacob's son Judah, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from, be- from between his feet, that's a sign of authority, that's a sign of royalty, until Shiloh comes, that's a very difficult word to translate, some of your translations say Shiloh, or some, of you, some of them say tribute, but a ruler that you would pay tribute to till he comes and to him shall be the obedience of all the nations." Very difficult to translate, but it's almost certainly referring to a leader from the tribe of Judah who would rule Israel and bring peace to the world. More directly, God anticipated this event in 1 Samuel 8 when, uh, to Moses. In Deuteronomy chapter 17, Moses said, he called the shot in a way in advance. He said, when you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, And you possess it and dwell in it and then say, I will, and then you're going to say, I will set a king over me like all the other nations around me. This is uh, years before it actually happened. Look what God says. He says, you may indeed set a king over you, but whom the Lord will choose. One from your own brothers, not a foreigner, will be a king over you. So the idea of a king in and of itself, here's, my, here's the point. An idea of a king in and of itself is not a bad desire in and of itself. In fact, God seems to have anticipated this desire and set some parameters to guide the process in advance. The king will be a person that Yahweh chooses. He'll be from the tribe of Israel and, and so forth. I think God was able to anticipate this desire in part because the desire to rule And the desire to be ruled is baked into the DNA of every human soul. I'm going to say that again. I think God was able to anticipate this desire for rulers, leadership, justice, that type of a thing. Because the desire to rule in all of you and the desire to be ruled is baked into your soul. It's part of who you are. Let me explain. If you go back to to Genesis chapter 1, everything's found... The entire Bible is found in Genesis, the first three chapters of Genesis, just in seed form. If you go back to Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, you read that then God said, let us make man in our image, the Hebrew word is tzelem, and our likeness, demuth, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him, male and female he created them, and God blessed them. We also desire that. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, Kabash, subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every, every living thing that moves on the earth. And the Lord God took the man, this is, I'm skipping to chapter 2 now, verse 15, and the Lord God took the, took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work and to keep it. Okay, let me go through some of these words with you here. The word image and likeness, so the words selim and demuth, they're basically used almost synonymously to mean the same thing in the Hebrew. And... They were used in most of the ancient Near East to refer to a king, a leader, a ruler, a king, who would have an image of himself carved perfectly to his image, several of these copies, and they would place this image of themselves, this selim of himself, all over his territory, to represent his rule to represent his mishpat, to represent the way, his custom of ruling by his image. What is So Genesis chapter 1 is telling us, first of all, you and I were made for that. That's what it means to be a Mago day. at least in, to some degree. It means that we were meant, we were made in God's image. We are carved idols of God, so to speak, if you would, images that God says, um, be fruitful and multiply over the all of the earth. Go out and represent me and my way, my custom, who I am over all the earth. Rule the earth, okay? Also, the word subdue is a very interesting word that mo- uh, has theologians scratching their heads because it's a violent word. It's the word "kabosh," And it's only used violently, Only. Throughout the Bible, it's only used in a violent way um, to subdue. And the reason it has people scratching their heads is because this is a word that's before the fall, before the sin of mankind. So the idea here is is that we were created in a world that is not finished yet, that is perfect yet not complete, still not reaching its full potential, and. I mean, and obviously, there's a cosmic battle going on. The reason I say obviously is because when we get to chapter 3, before Adam and Eve fell, a fallen spiritual creature showing up as a snake, clearly already fallen, already against Yahweh, shows up to deceive and to bring chaos. So sometime before... This event, sometime in eternity past, or however you want to say it, there was a there was a rebellion, a cosmic rebellion, and that's one thing that we Westerners in Western the- theology we tend to read over this cosmic element of the of the Bible. Um, for example, when when the children of Israel are are in Egypt and God rescues them, and there's this kind of showdown, this cosmic showdown between Yahweh and the gods over. The land of Egypt, the gods that the Egyptians are worshiping, we like to think it's their superstitions and, tradition, and magician kind of trickery type of a thing. There's no hint of that in, if you read it. There, there are actual lowercase gods, principalities, created spiritual beings that have rebelled from Yahweh that Deuteronomy 28 tells us have been given assignment over different parts of the, of the earth that are wanting to rip mankind apart. So a lot, there's a big element in the Bible of, of this battle going on, and we see that from the first page. Mankind, in other words, mankind was created in a war zone, at a world, in a world at war. His creation process was perfect, yet not complete. And so what we see in, a, in this uh, God creating you and me, creating humans, is a partnership for us to continue bringing the world into subjection, subdue it to the glory of Yahweh how through sadaqa mishpat the word um, by the way uh, in let me skip to chapter 2 verse 15 the words work and keep work and keep the Lord God took the man and man and put him in the garden of Eden to work and keep to work and keep Um, those two words, work and keep, are used in a variety of places, but only one context, exclusively. They are not used in any other way. These two words are only used in the Bible to speak of the work that a priest does in bringing mankind into into the temple of God to be before God. Only. Only. I'm not being extreme uh, uh, um, loosely. I mean it. You can do a word search. There only is, when you get to Exodus and he's describing the work a priest would do in the temple, it's translated serve. That he would serve Yahweh or be led by Yahweh to lead others into God's presence. The purpose of mankind is to bring the world in this priestly work, in the creation, into the subjection, worship, and love of Yahweh. That's what we're here for. And you use your talents, your intelligence, your gifts to do all of those things. We were made to rule and to be ruled by God. That's what we were made for. And we were made, as we're being ruled by God, submitting to him, we were, we were made to rule Selim, or demuth, in the likeness of God, like God, in his custom, in his way. So here's the idea. The idea is that you would know what it's like to be ruled by the generosity and love and character of Yahweh to such a degree that you would rule according to those ways yourself. That Adam and Eve are spending time in God's presence in the Garden of Eden in, with God in this cosmic temple, if you would to the point that the the relationship with God saturates them to where they do their job in that way. Sadaka mishpat. We know what justice is because that's what he's done to me. See how that works? Everything is predicated on a relationship, and that's why sin is such a problem. Um, So here's the point. Uh, What is the point, Mike? Here's the point. The point is that your deepest longings probably point to something you were made for. That's what I'm trying to say. Your deepest longings probably point to something that you were made for. They, some, they point to something essential. Do you, do you desire acceptance? Well, sure you do. Humans were made to be accepted by God and each other. Sure you do. Do you desire security? Well, Sure you do. Humans were made to enter into Sabbath contentment and security and perfect love that casts out all Fear. Security. Of course you need that. Do you desire romance? Of course you do. Humans were made for the capacity to love members of the opposite sex in a marriage covenant where two members of the same species, different but the same, come together in vulnerability. Of course. Do you hate being lonely? Well, of course you do. You were made to be alone. So, this desire is fundamental fundamental, and it's good, but because of the distorted condition of the human soul, our most fundamental desires are also used to bring us into bondage. That's, the sec- that's my second point. They're also used to bring us into bondage. Now, here's where we get into the Bible's amazing and complex idea of the doctrine of sin. See, sin, sin is not doing things that you're not supposed to do. That's not just what sin is, it's that, but it's more than that. Sin is the perversion of something truly great. That's the way the Bible portrays it. Sin is not just doing the stuff that's bad, it's using the stuff that's good to do the stuff that's bad. So using your desires, the things that you long for, the fundamental essentials of who you are, like in our context in the Bible, leadership, kingship, to use that to get away from Yahweh. Sin is the, the perversion of something great. There's a great Latin phrase for this if you want to know. It's corruptio optimo pessima. and It means the corruption of the best is the worst. The corruption of the best is the worst. It's using something's design to accomplish the opposite of the purpose of that design. It's using something's design to 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 create the opposite of the purpose of that design for example we just talked about mankind being the image the selim of God and Mago Dei and that we're designed to image Yahweh to the world and sin works in our hearts in such a way that to use our image meant to promote Yahweh but to image self instead we use something good against its own purpose and that is what makes sin so insidious and sneaky by the way really sneaky because we like to think that sins are just obvious you know like should i buy a gallon of milk or a gram of meth like obvious right We'd like to think it's just obvious, but sin is more insidious than that. It works in our grade. it works in our desire to bring security for our children. Good desire at its root, but it can warp it to make it more about us and bringing security. If I can be, if I can, I can win through them. That kid reflects me, so I want them to be the You see what I'm saying? It twists things. It can use our desire for security, which is what we need, to twist into greed, to hoard, to keep our resources to ourselves instead of releasing them to help those in need. By the way, if you haven't noticed, we're going into an economically troubling time where we dare dare not... uh, abdicate our responsibility to love and give and share to the government christians acts chapter 2 we share why we're releasing god's power we're releasing his resources but we can't do that if our desire for security is running amok we'll hoard we'll keep we'll stash those types of things When God has given us blessings to give at great need to ourselves, it feels very counterintuitive to give. Um, And this is the problem that we're coming to here. Their desire for a a king is good. It's very good. But God says it best in verse seven, and the Lord said to Samuel, obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they've rejected me. In other words, this good desire is being used by Israel to reject the king of their heart, to reject Yahweh. They're taking something integral to their very nature and using it to reject the one that they are made for. And that's what makes sin so sneaky. It uses things that seem good. We can easily justify what we're doing because sin goes down, it goes way deeper than action, but to motive. Doesn't it? The the why is way more important most of the time than the what. Sometimes there are wonderful practical reasons why we should or why there's nothing wrong with going about what we want to do, but internally we know, I'm doing this for different reasons that don't necessarily make sense in the practical world, They're using their design in a way not to fulfill their design. And this is where we get back to the idea of justice as the way or the style of kings. If you look at verse 11, he says, this is really interesting. Look at verse 11 with me. He said, this is Samuel talking to the people, these will be the ways of the king who shall rule you. This is his play on words. You know what the word ways is? This shall be the ways or the customs of the king. Interestingly, it's, not, it's mostly translated justice. It's the word mishpat. It's a play on words. In other words, these kings that you want to be like have their own way of justice. They have their own idea of what this, of what this looks like. Um, for one thing... Uh, the kings of the ancient Near East, this, is, this gives you some insight of what, they, of what Israel is after here. The kings of the ancient Near East are also very religious people. They're not, don't think of them as like our secular government. They, they all had their gods that they were trying to appease, that they were trying to work towards. But their relationship to their gods, unlike Israel's relationship to Yahweh, was very codependent. Here's what I mean by that. As a leader, as a king, as a ruler of a pagan nation, I will make sacrifice, I will build temples and and, and monuments and all sorts of things in order to make the God I'm serving do what I want. That was the whole point. They believed that if they did the things that the gods were demanding, then the gods were beholden and had to under contract, do what they were demanding. This was a way for control. And this looked very attractive to the Israelites at this point. In fact, they had tried this before in chapter 4. Do you remember? When they were fighting the Philistines, they thought, let's bring the ark out like a four-leaf clover. Then he'll have to fight for us. And they realized Yahweh doesn't play like that. He is not beholden. He can. Do, he's going to do what he's going to do. And that makes him very unpredictable. We don't like that, do we? We don't like to have to trust God, fully abandoned to Him. I'll trust... We we usually... And here's what is quietly in the back of our minds. Sometimes we can't even hear it. I will trust you if... If... And we don't even... This is probably semi-conscious, subconscious, but we think if my children are secure, if I don't lose my job, if things go well, if, 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 if. We're doing this this bartering thing. And that's the sign of idolatry. Yahweh is going for complete, total dependence on him and trust in him. He will be and is in charge forever, period. That's, That's it. He's in charge. Israel wants a different kind of king. That's why this is a rejection of Yahweh. Yahweh knows what's going on. They've not rejected you, Samuel. They're rejecting me. They want a God like all the other kings have gods that they can control, manipulate, barter. They can ma- try to make God their slave because they want to be gods. They're imaging themselves. And, it's a tra- and as the Ammonites are rising up in the, in the east, it's kind of attractive to have some control over your gods. It's another form of idolatry. But Yahweh is a God that can't be controlled or manipulated. What is the style of the justice of the kings? Here's the way. Look at, did you notice what it is? How many times? He will take, 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 take. I think there's five of them if I counted it right. He will take. That is their way And that is what this king of Israel will do if they have a king like the other kings. He will take. And of course, this is exactly what happens. This is exactly what happens. Not only was Saul, chapter 9, we're going to be introduced to a young man named Saul, who is a very interesting person, extremely interesting person, um, that has a, a... incredibly fast rise looks like and has a meteoric fall but this is also a prophecy of all the kings that are that if you were to keep reading and get into first and second kings you will see king after king after king with the exception of a few but king after king after king that will take 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 also did you notice the the language referring to egypt Remember what I keep telling you. The the, the Egyptian language is all throughout this passage and in chapter seven. Remember what we keep telling you here if you've been coming to to Wallingford for any amount of time. The Bible is meditative literature. In other words, it will keep bringing events up but with more to think about. This is one of those times. The author is very intentionally reminding his readers of Egypt. Chapter seven um, in chapter 7, when Samuel was so, he was so clearly compelled, compared to Moses. Remember that, if you remember from a few weeks ago, Samuel was interceding between Yahweh and, um, and Israel. Remember we said uh, one of the points of that sermon was come but never come alone. You can, we can only as Christians come um, because of somebody else. We get, we get God's favor because he has favor on Jesus. Well, that's what we found in Moses. Moses, God gave favor to the Israelites who were sinful and idol-worshiping, broke God's heart. God gave favor to them because Moses, because, literally because Moses found favor. Moses interceded and said, give them favor because I found favor. We find the same idea in Samuel. Samuel's coming. The Israelites are talking. Samuel relays it to God. God speaks to Samuel. Samuel relays it to them. He's pointing out their failures. They're repenting. They're confessing. Samuel's going to bat for them. God shows up in this mighty way. And there's this incredible historic uh, rescuing from the hand of the Philistines, much like there was this incredible historic rescuing from the hand of the Egyptians. God parts the Red Sea. And now the author clearly on purpose, skips a huge swath of Samuel's life and lays chapter 7 and chapter 8 side by side. Why? Because of the stark difference. Chapter 7 ends on this high note. Samuel's this great leader. As all the days of his life, he leads them, and they're prospering, and they they repent from all the Baals and ashtaroths, and they're doing great. And Samuel's just riding high all the days of his life. That's chapter 7, this woo! And then chapter 8 is this... Plunge, just like in Exodus, the children of Israel go through the Red Sea, and what do they start doing? And amazingly, they start looking back at Egypt, going, "Man, I wish we were back." And if you've read it, it just blows your mind—the the, the the extremes of the two. He just parted the Red Sea for you, and and they sing this praising song, and then the next chapter, we're thirsty. Did you bring us out here to die? At least we had garlic in Egypt. I, you know, the same feel is here. And there's even a direct mention to Egypt here. What does God say? He says to Samuel, this is what they've been doing since the very beginning. They've been doing this since the very beginning. Now look, what's gonna happen is this king will take, 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 and did you notice the end? Until they, look at um, he will take, this is verse 16, he will take your male servants, your female servants, and, make the be- and take the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take, and on top of all that, he'll, ten- he'll take a tenth of your land. So he's gonna take your land, and then what you've got left, he's gonna take a tithe from that. And you shall be his slaves. Now, well, look at this. And in that day, you will cry out, that's a reference to Exodus 2, verse 23, where the children of Israel cried out under the bondage of Egypt to Yahweh, and the cry came before Yahweh's, came before him, and he answered, Except this time you will cry out to Yahweh because of your king, just like you did in Egypt, whom you've chosen for yourself, but the Lord this time will not answer you in that day. In other words, this request of yours. Um, From a need that's true, from a longing that's good, but perverted by sin, will lead you not into security, but into slavery, a bondage that you can't get out of. Have you heard the expression, be careful what you wish for? You just might get it. So much of the time, we get what we think we want, we get what we need, and it ends up becoming an absolute bondage to us, you know, the double-edged sword of blessing. We talk about that all the time here in the West we're so affluent and yet that comes with its own set of major big problems we always talk about that when it comes to these things remember the days when we used to just talk to each other (laughs) i was talking to a friend that said man i tell you i sit down i I sit down at the doctor's office in the waiting room and i start getting anxious and i pull out my phone to read I, I, i cannot have a moment i have to i have to check the news, I've got to read the email, I've got to check Facebook, I've got to check Instagram, I've got to, I've got to and it just becomes when do we, we there's a trade off, technology is great, it's wonderful but there's a trade off, isn't there? And he's saying look you want a king, it's good it's good you, you, you're meant to want a king but the kind of king you want there's, a, there's too steep of a trade off here you will be eventually a slave it enslaves them and it will it will when if you read through first and second kings first and second chronicles you will see corruption corruption and you will see that they eventually will go back to egypt except this time egypt will be a place called babylon they will go they will be taken out of their land again how does god deal with idolatry this idolatry of the heart a good desire that's bent inward ladies you read out of the silent planet you'll hear that word bent it's, uh, lewis uses it incredibly good things that are bent inward how does god well incredibly he lets them have it he lets them have it he let, he gives them what they want Verse 22, this is one of three times that he says it. And The Lord said to Samuel, obey their voice and give them a king. Do it. Why? Two reasons. Sometimes the only way you can truly learn something is to see it yourself. Sometimes the only way you can truly learn something is to experience it and see it yourself. You've heard that phrase, some people have got to learn the hard way. You can see that these people are like that. They're not listening to reason. Have you, ever, have you ever tried to convince somebody of something and you can tell before you're even done that they're, they, they're, they're not, they're, they've already decided that you're wrong. You know what I'm saying? And you just tell yourself, you know, I'm just gonna save it. I, I, I'm not, they're gonna have to f- learn the hard way. I, there, there, was this, <laughs> there was this young woman, and a little anecdote. There was this young woman that used to, she was, I was her youth leader and she used to love to punch me randomly. I remember we were doing this Thanksgiving event and she just hauled off and slugged me in the stomach and I wasn't prepared for it. She just, I mean, with, with all of her might and soul, just wham, took me to the ground, air was knocked out and, you know, I'm start, and I finally told her, I said, look, I am not going to hit you back ever but someday, You will meet somebody that does not have the same morals as me, and he will destroy you. Ten years later, I lost contact with her, and someone came up to me and said, did you hear what happened to so-and-so? I said, no. She was with this guy, not a Christian guy. She was hanging out with the wrong crowd. She was flirting with this man. She decided to slug him in his stomach. He pinned her down underneath him and caved in her face with his fists. She had to have reconstructive surgery. So I went to the hospital and I said, I told you. No, I'm just kidding. I didn't. I didn't do that. think Now's not the time for an I told you so. But I was like, okay, look, she was not, re- she did not take my advice. She had to learn that way. And sometimes, gosh, I'm like that, where people have told me and told me and told me, and they made good convincing arguments, and just no matter how well they say it, I'm just not, for whatever reason, I want it so bad that I'm just not willing to listen. I just want it so bad, and I'm convinced this is what I need. Oh, fine, I'll, t- yeah, 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 I know all those bad things can happen, but just give me, give me, give me, give me, give me, give me. And I learned the hard way. This is where they're at. God says, fine, I'm going to give this to you, and I'm going to let you go down this road, and you're going to go back to Egypt, the place that I got you out of. You're going to go back there except worse Secondly, God is going to use this eventually to bring a monarchy that will not take, but will give. I'm not talking about, David will, will point to that. We have Saul, we'll talk about David in our time in 1 Samuel, but, and David's wonderful, but he points to a greater than David who will come. What's the way of Yahweh. What's the way of Sadaka mishpat? Is it to take, 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 take? In Jesus' words, for God so loved the world that he gave, gave his only begotten son. That whoever would believe in him would not get what they deserve and perish, but have life, zoe in the greek which is a quality of life would have a quality of life now and forever that no one could take it away now and forever and that they would be blessed in a way that they would truly be conformed into the true image of man colossians that we are being conformed into the image of god the image of the son of man who will rightly image God to the world through gift? How did how did Jesus image God to the world? How did he satakam uh, mishpat? How did he Selim and demuth to the world? He poured himself out. He sacrificed himself. Him being God, Philippians two did not think equality with God, something to be grasped, but emptied himself, kenosis, emptied himself of all of, those, of all of those blessings, eternal riches, emptied himself so that you could be eternally blessed and so that you and I could go out and image him to the world by the same mode, the way, the custom of our king is to give, 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 give. give.